Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 508. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows in the network, go ahead and visit evergreenpodcast.com. This week's interview is with Dr. Alan Cowan. Alan is the CEO and Chief Scientist at Hume AI, a science-backed expression API platform for researchers and developers, and whose mission is to align science and technology with human well-being. In this conversation, we discuss his background, including five years working at Google doing scientific research on AI, the Hume AI project and business model, the state of play in understanding our emotions and creating artificial empathy, a perfect topic for anyone interested in how AI will play an important part in tending to our well-being. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a little moment, go over and drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Dr. Alan Cowan. Um, great to have you on the show. You and I share an alma mater. Uh, we also share, I would characterize it as a shared passion for understanding the intersection of AI and emotions. In your own words, Alan, Dr. Cowan, who are you? Well, first of all, it's great to be here. I'm Alan. I'm the CEO and chief scientist of Hume AI. And First and foremost, I'm a, I'm a computational emotion scientist. I have a PhD in psychology, and then I helped a lot of tech companies work on how you apply the science of emotion to what they were doing and worked at Google for a few years and then left to start Hume because I realized we kind of needed to bring together a different group of experts to really solve this problem. Mm. Well, let's get into that. But first, Google. So what was your experience like working at the the beautiful Google uh, Don't Do Evil? <laughs> and and what did you take away from that that you're using today at Hume? Well, I, you know, even before Google, I was advising a lot of companies that were thinking about this problem, how you use innovations in emotion science to understand how to build AI that really helps people. And the goal was really to identify some proxy of human well-being, human satisfaction that AI could learn from. But what I learned in general from the experience of consulting and working with these companies is that the AI world was still drawing most of its insights from computer science, even when it comes to human behavior. They were not really reading the most recent psychology literature. Mm. And there was good reason for that. The, the you know, older psychology literature was clearer. There's like, there's five or six facial expressions Going back to like the six 1960s. emotions, <laughs> right? It's very clear, and and it didn't have all of these sort of uh, vague uh, self critiques that kind of complicate things. And uh, and in computer science, it was really easy to operationalize those older theories. And at the same time, the newer psychology studies didn't have the kind of data that would help the tech world move forward from this. So this was a big problem. And I saw this consistently wherever I went. And so it was clear to me that what we needed to do was start something new that would be a joint effort, bringing together computer science and psychology and the tech world to kind of get the data that was needed to move past these older theories and operationalize things in a new way. That said, working at Google, you probably had a fair amount of data. 
And I, I'm, I'm familiar with Danielle Kratek, with whom I was on a radio show and, and the Empathy Lab. What, what did you take away from their efforts to get into empathy? And, and what would, how, I put the cursor on the line of good to evil. <laughs> you know, I think everyone is well-intentioned there. Um, I, I, I didn't see any evil going on. Um, what I saw were attempts to solve a problem using what they had. They had tons of data, right? Google has no shortage of data. And, you know, it's it's ironic because the data that Google has actually is, you know, that they're willing to use for machine learning anyway, is public data that everybody has. And other mm -hmm. companies use that same data. So even though Google has a lot of data, it's not really uh, an uncommon kind of data that they have to learn from. Um, it also, you know, has kind of the same issues as everybody else's data, which is that it's just from the internet, right? And it doesn't have people's self-reported emotion or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So it's has, unstructured, it's untagged. It's unstructured and untagged, which is good for kind of the initial problem of pre-training a neural network. It's not great when you want to extract from that pre-trained neural network or just from scratch some semblance of uh, of controlled psychological insight <laughs> mm -hmm. is what uh, I, I would I would say is missing. There, there's no experimental control. You, you can't really say whether somebody posted a video because this thing happened in the video or whether this thing happened in the video because of something else. You know, there, there's there's a cause and effect relationship that you can never take away from these things. There's a lot of bias. Women are portrayed in certain ways, men are portrayed in certain ways. Um, and when you take that data down from the internet, you don't have uh, you know, any ground truth to compare it to. So you get ratings from professional raters. And these are trained raters who are told, you know, this is a theory from psychology from the 1970s. Uh, we we want to evaluate how accurately you can put these facial expressions into six different buckets. And they do it. And it just, you know, it wipes out all the nuance first of all, but also there's perceptual biases when people are looking at images with of people with sunglasses. Those people mm -hmm. always look like they're expressing pride. Um, when you're looking at women, uh, there's different judgments than when you're looking at men. Uh, when people are wearing sports jerseys, it's just there's so much, uh, there are so many confounders, really. Yeah, book that, by cover. Yeah, exactly. And so you can't extract the insights that you want. So that so it's sort of like you have all this data, but it's kind of like being on the ocean and being thirsty. You know, it's like it's not the right data. It reminds me of the ongoing challenge of trying to figure out how the brain functions and the computational efforts that have been done in Japan and Switzerland to I mean, those are the two that I know about to try to map out how the brain functions. We're so far away from it. So at some level, wouldn't you say that? making it simple is a a way forward because if we're trying to chart the entire brain good luck yeah i mean making it simple is good by sort of tackling it piece by piece um and that's really great especially in domains like perception where there really is a specific part of the brain that is responsible for converting 
uh, stimulation of the retina into meaningful kind of visual insights. And that's the mm -hmm. occipital lobe. And you can actually look at specific cells in the occipital lobe and, and see that they're doing certain things like looking at different orientations and so forth. And I can get into that, but, <laughs> but that's a little bit of a digression. But uh, from the perspective of emotion, I mean, emotion is a, a kind of a different beast, right? Because mm -hmm. it really involves, first of all, the whole brain. It involves almost every aspect of psychology. It's active in some way kind of throughout our entire lives. Uh, it influences what we think about, what we perceive, what we attend to. And uh, it's just always in the background and it's holistic. It's, it's, this, it's this thing that involves motor functioning and forming expressions and it involves uh, memory and it involves uh, cognition and attention and all of these things. So it's not as simple as, you know, breaking away one element. And when you try to come up with a theory of expression that has, you know, six different states and, uh, and your facial expression is always only expressing one of them, uh, what happens is you're actually throwing away a ton of data. <laughs> you're taking data that has all of this stuff in it because you can't take this out of this rich data. data. Mm -hmm. It's rich, but all data is rich, right? It's just, it's just mm -hmm. all of the data that you try to force into this very simplistic model actually has a lot more in it. It's not like perception where you can actually just take a picture that only has one orientation. Mm -hmm. it, it's always going to have all of this complexity to it. And so it doesn't really work to try to simplify uh, from the beginning. You really need to kind of tackle the complexity head on. Wow. Well, uh, but at the same time, we're we're rendering it more complex, in my opinion, if you take the DSM, for example, and how it's expanded to 950 pages, 354 different uh, maladies or disorders, uh, maybe the next one's going to have another 500. And I mean, I exaggerate, but you know, when does it end, the, the level of subtlety? Because if we're going to start going down to every neuron and then dissecting every emotion into 16 different styles of emotions, good luck following that rabbit. Well, there's not an unlimited amount of diversity here. So what you need to understand, well, as you add more dimensions to it, you're explaining less variance, right? Um, and so there is there, there is somewhere that you can stop and be like, okay, I've captured 99% of the variance with 25 or 26 dimensions or something like that in a specific context for a specific expression. Um, and it's really important to know how many dimensions you need and to know how things are kind of distributed along those dimensions and to know how those things are conceptualized. That's kind of the first question. And then you kind of know where you need to stop or, or how much you're missing if you stop at six dimensions. Turns out six dimensions capture like 20% of the information in a specific expression. And you also need to combine across different expressions because expressions are multimodal. You have audio, visual. So all, there's all these complexities. Mm. Um, but you know, 25, 30 dimensions, you start to be able to capture most of what's going on. So there is a kind of, it's not a stopping point, a strict stopping point, mm. but you have a sense of like how much you need there. And then, you know, with regard to the DSM, I think that there's a ton of different symptoms that overlap across many different disorders. And so the DSM is this thing kind of born out of necessity 
of mm-hmm. like, uh, you kind of need kind of specific diagnoses because clinical trials are built in a specific way where you can only recommend drugs or treatments if somebody has this specific set of symptoms. So it really yeah. is working backwards from the treatment. But what you'd want to do is actually predict whether a drug is going to help somebody. And that you may be able to do along fewer dimensions. And that there's there's been efforts to do that. So hopefully DSM will get shorter and, and actually there won't be this like long set of rules and instead, it's like uh, we can predict based on this patient's pattern of behaviors, what is going to be most effective for them at solving their issue. Before getting into exactly your work, one other area that's of interest to me as I look at it as a layman's perspective, and or at least reading a, a little bit about it, there is a school of thought that says we don't even know what we're thinking and feeling. We're not able to, as individuals, properly express what we're feeling. We we make we make mistakes between uh, different types of humor. We make uh, mistakes in understanding whether we're depressed or sad, just to name some easy ones. But uh, uh, underlying this, I feel a large part of our problem is actually lack of self-awareness, self-knowledge. And so now we have Facebook saying we know you better than you, and 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 is that is that what we're aiming at? Is that is that what we're going to end up with? Machines that know us better than ourselves? Well, i i don't I don't think that we have as much of a lack of self awareness as as many people say. I think that um, generally people can't express themselves very well. I think that there's there are limitations to the language that we use, and there's kind of movements and art that are dedicated to expressing yourself more precisely mm-hmm. in, in some ways, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't know what we're feeling. And it, it it's just really difficult. If you, if you go to a doctor and you say like, hey, I'm having this issue, it's really difficult to express yourself precisely enough uh, that um, the doctor knows exactly what's going on because feelings are so complicated and just the words are, are limited. Um, oh, and loaded, by the way. And loaded, right. So there is something that would be, and, and doctors, and of course, like the, we don't just use words to express ourselves. We use expressions. We use, you know, we, we say like, you know, this is how I'm feeling. I'm feeling you know, not well. And then you can, this is the kind of how I'm, my pain feels and all these things. And if you take all the literal words somebody is saying and you try to turn it into a diagnosis, you're not going to capture what the doctor is diagnosing because the doctor is looking at beyond just the words, holistic, the kind of the whole picture. Right. Um, and so part of it is kind of almost capturing what humans already kind of capture naturally um, in that whole interaction. Language models capture part of it. Right. And, 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 but, but a big part of that is missing a big chunk is missing from, from what language models are doing. So that's kind of what we're restoring to the picture and uh, we're quantifying it in a way that words can't really capture um, that you know, go beyond the kind of the indeterminacy of language. So in terms of Hume, um, let's get into that. First of all, Hume, uh, is it human or is it Sir Douglas? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a play on words. It, I love that it's kind of human. Um, David Hume, who was a Scottish David, philosopher, sorry, he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he wrote uh, about emotion a lot. He wrote that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. That was one of his most famous lines. And he meant by that, that, um, that thoughts and behaviors, first of all, they're driven by our emotions, which was a controversial idea at the time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and a lot of people thought this was, you know, 
a terrible thing to say because moral philosophy is not driven by emotions, but, but he was arguing that it is like people have intuitions and then they try to back a moral theory based on those intuitions. But he was saying that this is a good thing, that because your thoughts and behaviors really only exist to make you happy anyway, it's a good thing that they're driven by your emotions. So we take inspiration from this. And that's you know why we believe that this should be the case for AI, that the thoughts and behaviors of AI should also exist only to make you happy and to make people happy in general, humans happy. All right. And potentially well, animals. <laughs> yeah, nice. Well, yeah, they, they probably feel pain. Um, in in our, uh, The Fourth Age by um, Byron Reese, he refers to another school of thought, which suggests that we do things before we even felt them or know them. So there's like this split microsecond, and, and, and we don't even know we're going to do it. But the intentionality happens before. What do you think about that? And is that also some other form of emotion that's just triggered before we even know it? Well, if you think about it, really, like every thought that we have comes from somewhere and it can't come from another thought, right? So, so like, where do our thoughts come from? It's a baby thought. <laughs> a baby thought. But really, there's a thought that come before, came before and then, you know, there's something in between. And that thing in between, I really think, is emotion. I think that it's the emotions that sort of guide us from one thought to another as we're going through this chain of thoughts and the branches and decide which kind of branch we go down. And the more awareness we have of that, the more we can kind of try to put, us, put ourselves in the right mindset to address something and to think about things the right way. But we can't, at the time, control the the chain of thoughts. Uh, we kind of have to let it let it be. Um, and so from the perspective of like, do we have um uh what's the word? Um, free will. Free will. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it was on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> uh it doesn't matter if 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 you know if at the end of the day your thoughts are coming from somewhere that's uh that's not uh another thought. Um, then it's not really a question of whether we have free will. It's a question of whether we feel like our thoughts are consistent with our what we want, right? And uh, and as long as our kind of our thoughts are in harmony with our emotions and our emotions are, are are kind of in harmony with what is good for us, I think that that's true. Uh, is there not a yeah. possibility that in the seeking of good for us, we stray from who we really are? Yeah, I mean, but, but we ha we have some control over who we are in the first place, right? We want to kind of be virtuous people in some way. Uh, most, we, we, most, mostly, most <laughs> of the time. We, yeah, uh, we have ideas about what's right and what's wrong, right? And those really strongly affect who we are. And uh, we also are kind of these, we're animals, Right. And we evolved in a context that is not the one in which we live. Um, and so fundamentally, like our instincts are not necessarily primed for us to to be the people we want to be. And sometimes we have to stray from those. And that doesn't mean straying from who we are. I, I don't think it does. I think it almost means um, it, it elevates the idea that, we, you know, we can be control in control of our destiny mm -hmm. and we can have some. Uh, influence over what we want to be 
Well, the suggestion that that has for me, Alan, is that we are enlightened uh, by nature and this idea of consciousness and the, and the greater sense of the world is is innate in us. I think consciousness is innate. I think emotions are innate. Um, I think emotions, how we express them is influenced by culture. The times at which we feel those emotions are influenced by upbringing culture very significantly. But the emotions themselves, the set of feelings that we can feel has to be there from the beginning um, and really programmed into us by evolution. And so we are fundamentally trying to optimize to make ourselves feel the right emotions at the right times. But but we operate around the constraints that we are animals that kind of ha are, are serving a set of needs <laughs> that we evolved to have. Yeah, and we've done it in through different trees, if you will. So you've got different parts of the world. So the, the notion of emotion, how... What's your, where do you sit on cultural differentiation? I mean, if I take it from a layman's perspective, for having, I've traveled to about a hundred countries, and and uh, even like the idea of smiling or laughing, forgetting gestures and words and, and slang or whatever, but just the idea of smiling and laughter is for me very differently expressed. And and of course, the English have the best sense of humor. Just kidding, but. <laughs> Uh, but you know how, how does how do you look at emotions when you're trying to study the complexity of them already, even in one person, in one country, in one city, so on, as opposed to the seven billion? Do do, do you think that there is actually a, a a possible roadmap to having the mapping of all of those emotions for everybody in the world? Well, th there are substantial differences across cultures. But the nature of those differences tends to be that a set of emotional behaviors can be interpreted as having a similar meaning in most cultures, but they but but we would we would we we sort of modify when we're willing to express that basically and, mm -hmm. and the intensity with which we express that. That's mm -hmm. what what sort of differs the most across cultures. So you 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 need to have an understanding of what are norms around, for example whether it's good to express positive emotion in public. You know? right. If that's bad. Hey, high five. <laughs> then you're not, yeah, you know, that seems kind of American, right? Right, for example. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if if you're in a culture with different norms around that, then of course it means something different when somebody's expressing positive emotions in public. And yet we sort of agree on what the expression fundamentally qualitatively represents. That's something we right. kind of agree on for the most part across cultures. I mean, there are nuanced differences, but about 75% is preserved in, in sort of the qualitative meaning of things. But then when you when you don't control for kind of cultural norms and and what's good and what's bad in a given culture, then you lose most of that. You're down to like 20 or 25% looking like it's preserved. So it really depends on how you look at it. 
Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information. I'm imagining that your program has these kind of huge numbers uh, attached to different elements of each emotion. So the 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 left eyebrow goes up this much. That's a, let's call that E22. The right eyebrow goes up E27, plus a little wrinkle in the smile on the right side, the, 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 the voice inflection, that's on 64. So you have to sort of accumulate these things. And then on top of that, you have to layer on the cultural component. So in Sweden, they don't do the smile thing, you know, because they like isolation and confinement. So, you know, their level of funny when is is when they, you know, their nose wrinkles as opposed to the smile. So you have to add that layer into it. How's that work? So there, there's a few things here. So there, there's some similarities that can be drawn between kind of how you understand expression and how you can understand language. You know, language, like you can you can take what somebody is saying in the acoustic waveform, turn it into kind of phonetics, turn it into letters, transcribe it. So that's sort of where the measuring expressions comes in. Like you, you, your, your measuring expressions really matter kind of transcribing what's going on. And if there's like a left eyebrow that's being raised and it's this really complex thing to represent, it's, there's, there's many more dimensions than I think language at a given time. Sure. Um, but you know, the, the way that we kind of combine that across time is kind of similar to language as well. So when you look at kind of the sentence and you try to understand this meaning, what, what we do in machine learning is we project that sentence into an, what's called an embedding space. And basically that embedding space represents the sentence's meaning. In other words, you could say completely different words that have the same embedding because in general, they, they mean the same thing. Uh, and and that's really important to to do. So that's sort of we do the same thing for expression, right? You can take a pattern of expression over time, and you can project it into an embedding space. And then for language, like the 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 embedding space is used to then predict, like, well, in a classic machine learning kind of operate operationalization of this, like you're just predicting the next sentence or the next word. Um, but in applications, you're interested in predicting what somebody's how somebody's likely to respond to a decision right is it going to be yeah. good or bad for this person that kind of thing but that's embedded somewhere in the meaning of the sentence like maybe like yeah. I, I i tell a, a digital assistant like actually cancel my order on these shoes and then like the the inference is that if i cancel the order on these shoes then, then this will be good yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah pegasus systems they use this next best the next best decision based on 
what they they perceive to be the desire of the person on the other end. Exactly, exactly. And, and so it's much the same for expressions and, and how they sort of are intermingled with language. You have this embedding of expression and you can start to predict just from expressions, you can start to predict things like what somebody's likely to report having experienced in a given moment or things about their mental health or things about their personality and the culture they're in and their upbringing and development. All the things that influence expressions are somewhere in there if you have enough data. Uh, and, and the embedding is a little bit more complicated because it's influenced by all of those things. And so that's those uh -huh. are the things we have to think about. But we don't normally think too much about this one eyebrow raise. We're kind of thinking about it more holistically. Right. So uh, the other thing that was going through my mind was as you chart the words coming out of my mouth and you render those into some kind of typeset <laughs> words and you embed that, at the same time, the expressions that I'm having may not be happening at the same time as the words that I'm saying. You know, we will typically laugh after we've been funny, just to make a, an example. And so you have to put the sort of matrix and the time lags together. Is that a complication? Yeah, I mean, it's really complicated when you're trying to combine language and expression. It's not something that we've mastered yet. That's going to take a lot of time. And people are just kind of coming out with these amazing language embeddings. And that's the basis for things like ChatGPT. And so we are we are trying to build technology that's complementary to that, that people can mix together, which is why we keep we, we have like a separate language expression embedding and we we use a language embedding as well. And then it'll be an issue of combining those across time, which is complex. But the delay between expression and language is actually something that we exploit. And I think it's, it's very informative because if you want to train a language model that is optimized for somebody to laugh, that's it's great that the laugh comes after the language. And there's the kind of a cadence to that that you can exploit. Um, and so that's you can what we tag we're... it back. You go back and you can tag. That was funny. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and... Then you got your comedians are going to have new scripts from Chat, chat GPT. Right. <laughs> yeah, and and there's actually like it's really nice because there's a turn taking element to it. If someone says something, then there's a laugh, or then there's somebody says something else. You know, and, and you can exploit that nature, the kind of conversational nature of human interaction, to uh, to train better language models and better expression models. So at Hume, what I was understanding is that you are a lab that is looking at all these different elements somehow separately, which like in there's vocal impressions, uh, facial expressions, language out of mouth. And, and so you're working on all of these separately is that what i understand then sort of working with other companies who are then using you and that's the business model for the work yeah. that you're doing in sort of a advanced research on each of these different areas totally it, we don't it, they're, so they're separate at, at inception we're kind of creating models that measure each of these different things but then we're kind of mixing them together and the way that these things get mixed together the voice and face and body really depends a little bit on the context and what you're trying to predict um, and that then becomes more complex again. So as we like to work more closely with customers in a given application to help them figure out how these things are mixed together. Right now we have APIs that give you those measures individually, but we're going to have services that also combine those measures together to predict what you're most interested in and then backtrack and say, oh, mental health diagnosis X is driven by expression Y. Uh, and we can we can 
make those inferences pretty automatically. That's what we're building. Mm. So congratulations on the recent uh, raise. Uh, I think that was pretty new news, uh, raising $12.7 million. You have a team of 24. What are the hires you need uh, and how are you going to spend that money? Thank you. It's uh, it's an exciting time. We <laughs> we are hiring. Our team's actually uh, less than twenty still. We are still rolling out our beta of our platform and giving hundreds of companies access. We have over two thousand five hundred who are waiting for access, and so we're trying to roll it out as quickly as we can. So that's part of the motivation. We're hiring um, people who can talk to the developers using our platform and get feedback, developer relations. Um, we're hiring uh, you know, people at the front end who can build smoother user interfaces and, uh, and make sure that uh, everything is intuitive and usable. We're hiring uh, operations uh, folks and you know people in kind of these more essential positions to get it out. And then we're sales. also <laughs> not we you know since we sell to developers, they don't really respond well to a traditional sales sure. process. Mm -hmm. So it's really more about community building and getting sort of actual code snippets out there and tutorials to make sure that people have the resources they need. That's really what it's about. And developers are really good at searching. So they'll find those things if you put them out there. So you actually are going to hire a community manager? <laughs> community. So a developer relations person is kind of a new position. They, they, they deal with building community around your product uh -huh. and making sure that uh, when you solve a problem for one customer, you're not just solving it for them, you're solving it for everybody. So how do you get that information out in a way that, um, first of all, helps everybody who's using the product, but also when one customer solves their own issue, they can share that solution with other people. Because you're giving people a, a tool, but it's still kind of a, it's still a pretty sophisticated, complex tool to use. Well, in the, I can't help but uh, mention my good friend, Mark Schaefer, who has just uh, published a book on how and why to build community as the best nice. way to build a brand. So um, shout out to Mark, who will be on my show uh, in, in good, good measure soon. So you've, you mentioned at the very beginning um, how you are bringing in a, a poly set of experts from different areas. In my book on artificial empathy, I definitely came across the challenge of encoding empathy because it has to go through programmers and probably not their numero uno quality uh, <laughs> for guys who are spending their time in front of a computer and worried about the syntax of this, you know, the different uh, code that they're writing. To what extent is that something that you are facing head on? in your desire to understand emotion? So, I mean, the, the, there's good and bad aspects of, of that. So you don't want the programmer to hard code into the program what it means to be empathetic like that, because <laughs> that's really one person's judgments anyway. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's helpful, of course, to have people who can test the product and sort of figure out if it is empathetic and, and have a, a grasp on, a handle on that. But it's still their opinion. You, we, we're very driven by kind of getting the data that would enable the program to learn how to be empathetic from the population, from like not just the programmers that work for us, but from a much larger sample of people that we sample in a way that 
follows the best practices from psychology. That's, you know, that's where we're trying to go. That we have that requires innovations in sort of how psychology data is gathered. We gather, you know, tens of we take tens of thousands of participants and we get data from around the world um, from them while they're recording themselves and they're labeling their own expressions and saying, you know, this is what I think this means in this instance. Mm -hmm. And this is they're labeling their experiences. This is how this makes me feel. And they're talking to other participants and they're saying, you know, I think that conversation could have gone better or, or you know, so we're taking all of these insights uh, from people around the world who are being sampled in the appropriate way to be able to make generalizations. That's what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And the role of uh, computer scientists is in this situation is really as a scientist is thinking how you how do you model this data in a way that um, maintains its integrity that controls for any potential confounds and biases? How do you test for uh, generalizability? and so forth well uh, you know well funnily enough in my book i say that i you can no no better teach a computer to be empathic than you can teach a person to be empathic both need to learn to want yeah. to be empathic and uh that that certainly is something that i picked up in my my research so yeah. in in um in in this the, the challenge that i was really looking at was the nature of programming which is much more scientific and sort of hardcore science at some level, as opposed to all this soft stuff that you're doing. And, and so you bring in people with um, more, say, sociology, psychology, anthropology. Is that is that accurate with regard to your team? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the team uh, is kind of computational psychologists and affective computing researchers, because those are the closest thing mm. that we need to kind of bridge this gap, right? <laughs> and mm. and it's still a really big gap between those two fields. Mm. And so uh, that's what we're trying to, to bridge with large-scale data, which, you know, that's one of the reasons that there's this gap is because on the one hand, psychologists haven't been around to really gather the right kinds of data and computer scientists, because they didn't have that data, just gather themselves and they're not using the best practices, right? And so that's the first problem we need to fix. And so we're gathering huge data sets that are useful for computer scientists, but that whole process is being guided by psychologists, really, um, and but who understand the constraints around the computational problem. So that's uh, that's what you know. Two of the kind of realms of expertise in our team, but we also, of course, have like top tier machine learning researchers who can actually take right. those models that are trained and deploy them and make them usable by everyone around the world. And we have creatives and, um, and front end engineers as well, who can, who can make that product usable. So I, I was curious, um, on the use of humans in the training. So I as I understand it application or, you know, uh, the bot like chat GPT, used a, a number of human given data points to sort of allow the machine to learn better is is that something that's just essential in your work that's going to be essential i think for a lot of ai going forward but i don't think it's going to survive in that way so the way that chatgpt is trained is basically the that a small number of raters really are evaluating just a sampling of responses from the model and the model is fine-tuned on those specific ratings 
And that's what reinforcement learning from human feedback is. And by human feedback, they mean literally ratings. And this works actually, I think, surprisingly well. But uh, the preferences that it reflects are the preferences of those few raters. Mm -hmm. It doesn't capture all of the different kinds of outputs that the language model can generate. So it's not really robust. And it doesn't really adapt itself to individual users. So these are these are problems you can't solve with ratings. And you want to be able to do the same thing, but you want to be able to do it passively. And I think the key to that is actually human expression. If you have people's expressive responses to the technology, they don't have to tell you they like this or they don't like this response. The model should be able to infer that from the response of the user. And that is something humans do. That's principally what we do. We don't tell each other, hey, I didn't like what you just said. We we just react and, and then we learn. Yeah. Uh, so L- that's A little what, snicker or... Yeah, exactly. And, and so that's that's what AI should be doing as well. And that I think is the future of this effort. It's going to be absolutely essential is uh, actually learning from expressive signals. They're collected from every person, every user in their own use of the technology in their own context that are used to improve how the technology works for everybody in a very nuanced way. All right. So I, I get back to my sort of obsession with uh, the nuance at some level, because uh, there's got to be a long tail, I'm thinking, of things that are happening. So I go off, I'm really happy, but I'm also a little bit sad. I'm thinking about what I'm doing tomorrow morning, and then I'm a little hungry, and all these things are happening really simultaneously as I'm talking to you. I mean, I am actually talking to you and my stomach is crumbling. So did you pick that up? You know what I mean? And, and so relevant, not relevant. And and what, what you know, where do you cut it off? Because if you're going to go down and, and I've got my shoulder pain that I have, which is impacting this and, and my bum is tired from sitting on yet another Zoom call, whatever, all these other things are going into it. And how do you how do you tell a machine, you know, to stop? Because otherwise you're going to use a lot more computational energy power doing stuff that's not quite as relevant. Right. There's so many different inputs to consider. So that's one thing. Um, but we, you know, we have a way to compress those down with kind of multimodal embeddings over time. So that's one one thing we can do. We can try to make that as independent of what you're wearing and who you are and so forth. But, you know, what's really key is the ability for human computers to do what humans do. Humans simulate. So they basically say like, okay, this is what I've learned so far about what I think you want and when I'm talking to you. And I'm going to simulate saying something and and then kind of simulate what your reaction would be. And then I test that. That's the second part. That's what really mm. needs to happen is that after computers come up with a way of saying, oh, I think based on my simulation that this user is going to respond beneficially to this, then they try it, and that's where they get causality. It's like a kind of tiny experiment. And then they learn, oh, you know, when I actually manipulate this outcome, I learn that uh, I can separate out the different causes of somebody's expressions. It's not that, like, you reacted poorly to me when I woke you up <laughs> because of something I did. It's just like, you, you snort. know, like waking, <laughs> you know? So it's not like, I'm, it's not like I'm going to stop waking you up because that I, I can, I can test that possibility or, or, or do it in some kind of small way <laughs> and, and realize that's not, that's not what's good for you, but I can learn to wake you up in a better way and then kind of tinker with those possibilities. 
And that's what the computers will learn to do. And I think that our lives will become better in ways that we don't even anticipate from that. So I, I've uh, interviewed a couple of the psychologists that are working in AI around emotions, and you, I'm sure, are aware of Scott Sandland at Cyrano.ai and uh, Dr. Green Lord, who does Empathic.ai. Uh, if you're not, um, in any event, the the couple of things that I've sort of I, patterns I'm picking up as we explore this whole place, which, as you, of course, have said, we, we ain't finished <laughs> getting all the work done, <laughs> is that on the one hand. Uh, most companies are going at this sort of one block at a time. I'm going to figure out eye expression. I'm going to figure out mouth expression. I'm going to figure out language or whatever. And and then they get that as best they can. And then little by little, they'll layer in the other ones. The other observation I have seems to be through my discussions is that the 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 trial and error that you were just talking about, waking up or whatever, we go for training in least consequential situations. So am I going to be able to use this machine to help somebody buy a lollipop or whatever? Well, you know, of course, that's a sugar, so God forbid that's evil. But let's say, <laughs> you know, a, a commercial act, which isn't that big a deal. At the end of the day, you know, you're spending a buck 20. The, the end of the world will not be nigh if you buy or don't buy. So is that the type of work that you're also doing, which also feeds the beast, allows you to get revenues in? Because you can't go out there and do therapy just yet with your machines. So a few things. First, in terms of you know focusing on one thing at a time, I don't think that's the right approach because that to me is like if you were building a language model that only focused on certain letters, right? It just wouldn't, it wouldn't all tie together. So that's how I feel about that. And as I think it really makes sense to take account of all the signals. And when you do that, you get, you see something different. Um, facial expression looks weird if you're looking at it in isolation sometimes without considering sure. prosody and what's yeah, just, all that. Yeah. Watch, watch a video <laughs> without a television without the, without the voice. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think it makes sense to, to do it all at once. In terms of what is the, this going to be optimizing for, is it going to be optimizing for people to purchase things? We explicitly say that we don't we don't allow that. In fact, I don't think it's that helpful for that because if you're just going to optimize for a purchase, you might as well just use the raw audio and visual input as your signals and the algorithm will derive what is a relevant expression from that. Uh, and it will just do it in the way that a psychopath would do, which is, oh, this is the face people make when they want a lollipop or whatever. So yeah. <laughs> that's not really what we're aiming toward. Um, we want to aim for people to try to optimize for people's well-being in different ways. And that can be operationalized in a lot of ways that are consistent with commercial goals. You know, what is going to cause people to be more satisfied with the product, user satisfaction? What's their, you know, likelihood of recommending something, not regretting their experience? Um, you know, mental health is an obvious one, but also, you know, well-being and burnout are really important. You don't want people to, if your if your if your target audience is uh, is uh, students or or employees, you don't want them to burn out, and also you want them to consent to the use of these things and not feel like it's creepy. Um, so often, you know, many of the commercial uses are consistent with with optimizing for well-being 
And then when you when you have edge cases, sometimes those edge cases are really interesting because you can optimize directly for somebody to buy a lollipop, right? Or if you are considering expression, you can say, hey, optimize for somebody to buy this lollipop, but at the same time, make sure that all the levers that you're using to optimize for that are consistent with people not regretting that they did this, that they feel better afterward, that you know they uh, that they're expressing more positive emotions as a result of the manipulations that you're making, not manipulations per se of like human psychology, but just like all the changes that you're making to your product, just all the things that you know, that you're doing are are people better off at the end of the day. As you're optimizing for people's, it's fine to optimize for people buying the lollipop, but this is actually a protection against the AI using bad ways, you know bad methods to do that that are exploitative so that's that's where it gets interesting i think mm -hmm. and, and so we we are pursuing uh, uh you know certain applications like that with the goal of you know get people more engaged in positive ways on social media but not negative ways don't don't get people angry to get them engaged you can tell the algorithm to do things like this if you have these measures in a way that you wouldn't have been able to before it creates an algorithm that is not purely psychopathic, right? That that is attentive to like what the good methods are and what the bad methods are of accomplishing its objective. So um, time is running out. I'm so upset about that because one of the areas that I I'm struggling with as I sort of plow through it in thought experiments is is not optimizing just for happiness and just for well being. For example, I think that rage can be a significant motivator to do something. Uh, a, you know, a, a, a grudge or something that you didn't get as a child can make you really do something uh, strong. And so that negative beast, uh, call it jealousy, call it, uh, you know, pride, whatever, has motivation. And, and, and so I feel like we ought also to allow for that negativity to exist. If we don't embrace our negativity, put another way, then we've, we have to embrace perfection and good luck getting that. I completely agree with you. So one of the things we, we want to make sure people don't do is optimize for one really narrow dimension of well-being. And then everything else kind of disappears and you lose all the complexity of human experience. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is make sure that as much as possible of that complexity is preserved, but everything is being nudged in a good direction. So that's that's one answer to that. And, and the other answer is, it really matters what time scales you look at, right? Because even though you're saying it's good that you had this experience as a child that made you angry, you had this grudge and it motivated you, but 20 years later, you feel better off because of it. And hopefully you're exhibiting signs of being a happier person, right? And I'm not saying that we're going to get to that level of longitudinal study anytime soon. Unless but... you're the Harvard study, right? You know, the 80 years. That... <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's that, right? But there's also data in the world now that is a 20-year time scale of data. And a lot of it you own, and it's all in one place on your computer or your phone or like your archives, wherever it is. We can take advantage of this. And over time, this will be more of an issue of like, we can look back retrospectively at how platforms surfaced certain kinds of content, um, how things were optimized, and see how this is affecting people's lives and how the it's affecting society on a longer time scale. I think that's going to be a really important thing to do when you're deploying these kinds of technologies. 
So the last question is um, therapeutic AI. Uh, do you have any apps you would recommend? You think it's we're, we're there? When will it be, if not? So I think that it's coming close. I think people are having interesting experiences just using kind of proof of concept applications with ChatGPT and other language-based technologies, which is, I think, where we've seen the most development in the last few years, There's kind of language processing, language generation. And that's kind of exciting. I think that there's good and bad things to talking to a digital person. One is that you don't feel judged. And uh, you know the bad thing is that when that person, when the digital thing says, hey, I totally understand what you're going through, you're like, no, you don't. <laughs> so, so there's good and bad things. Um, and I don't think that we're going to be at the point anytime soon where technology is going to replace having a human therapist. And I don't think that should be the goal. But there, um, there's forms of augmentation that I think are going to be really important. So being able to monitor yourself and say like, you know, I have this assessment of how my week was going when I walk into the therapy Data. session, mm -hmm. but what if I actually knew what I was expressing during the week? And or when my heartbeat was up at that time or yeah. something else was happening. Exactly. Mm, and I think that's useful information. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the augmentation story is bigger, even in the sort of administrative level for a therapist so that they can deal with all the other stuff, the the screen calling and stuff like that, and then totally. get to the heart to heart, human to human. Alan, time is up. Darn. Um, how can people track you down? Uh, find out more about what you guys do, where you write. Uh, it's been fascinating chatting with you. Totally. Yeah. It's been great to be here. Um, if you want to check out Hume, uh, go to Hume.ai. If you're a developer, you can sign up for our waitlist there, get platform access um, pretty quickly and start playing around with our technology. We collaborate more closely with labs. And, and if you're interested in collaborating more closely uh, on any problem, you can always reach out uh, to hello at Hume.ai and, and tell us sort of what you're working on. We're really interested in hearing about that. To check out the ethical guidelines that guide some of our work, which I didn't get a lot of time to talk about, but um, we have a separate nonprofit that comes up with ethical guidelines that we adhere to and that we put into our terms of use. You can go to the humaninitiative.org. And again, we're, we welcome feedback on, on those. And uh, we have a podcast, The Feelings Lab, which is on all the places that you get your podcasts. Um, and I think that pretty much covers it. You can also follow us on Twitter. It's Hume underscore underscore AI, although we're trying to get a better handle. <laughs> get a better handle on Twitter. Like get yeah. a better handle on life. Yes. Love it. Alan, exactly. it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on interdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I 
do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.